Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. Today, I'm going to share with you a conversation I had with Matt Rogish of Reactive Ops. I'm currently on a bit of a mission to hear and share more stories from people who sell DevOps services. This really is because it's a, a good test case for marketing and selling horizontally specialized services. So last week I spoke with Corey Quinn, today with Matt Rogish, and next week I'll share with you a conversation I had with Mike Julian. All these folks sell services that fit under the umbrella of DevOps services, although there's real differences between what they actually do for clients and the outcomes and the value proposition. But generally they fit under the umbrella of DevOps, which we could definitely think of as a horizontal market position. So the simple answer about how to find buyers for horizontal specialization is inbound marketing. But that simple answer always conceals underneath it a ton of nuance about, well, okay, inbound marketing, but how do you actually do that? That's why I enjoy having and sharing these conversations with you is because of that nuance. As I listened back to my conversation with Matt Rogish, Several things stood out to me. First, Matt talks about identifying a market opportunity. This is one of those things we hear about all the time, but it rarely gets broken down into anything like a step-by-step -step process. I think the authors of uh, the Blue Ocean Strategy books have done a pretty good job of this, and their tools like the Business Model Canvas are also helpful. But Matt's story of actually doing it for real really brings this idea of intentional innovation to life. So listen for that. Since Reactive Ops' current market position is heavily based around a technology platform called Kubernetes, I couldn't help but ask Matt if he fears the ultimate commoditization of that platform. He actually has a terrific term for this, which he called fading into the background radiation of the internet. Love that. He's very frank and optimistic in his answer, and so it's really worth listening for that as well. Really hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt Rogish of Reactive Ops. Matt Rogish, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Hi, Philip. Thanks so much for having me. So um, some folks will know you by the name Reactive Ops, but for those that don't, can you kind of say who you are today, what you do today, and then we'll get into some of the backstory after that. Absolutely. So Reactive Ops is a completely distributed uh, DevOps as a service company focusing on Kubernetes as our uh, service delivery mechanism. And uh, what that really means is uh, Kubernetes has exploded in popularity. Everybody wants the kinds of platforms that Kubernetes can create, but it's sort of a mess to do it. It's, it's very challenging. It's hard to understand. And it's relatively below the waterline in terms of the kinds of uh, technologies that an application development team would need to uh, be interested in. And so they engage us to manage their AWS and Google Cloud infrastructure centered around Kubernetes. And we act as their, uh, as their DevOps team. You could reach us at reactiveops.com. That's great. So you're totally distributed, meaning physically distributed, right? You've got mm -hmm. people all over the country, the world. Um, all over the United States, uh, and I think we have uh, one person in Canada. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, so about how big is your team? 
at this stage, we just hired somebody who started, I think, today. Okay. Um, so we're, we're around 25 people, uh, plus or minus. I know we have a few other people in the hiring pipeline uh, that we expect to accept offers. So by, by the time this comes out, it might be a little bit more, but as of right now, it's about 25 folks. Okay, 25 and growing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then just to get a sense, is there a particular uh, focus on a particular type of client or a market vertical, or is it just, you know, anybody who responds to that value proposition of DevOps, Kubernetes expertise is potentially a client for you? Yeah, so it depends on the kinds of uh, service offering that they're looking for. So we do everything from uh, we'll do it for you uh, to do it with me to I'll do it myself. Mm -hmm. And so what we mean by that is, you know, if you come to us and you say, could you teach us Kubernetes? Sure. We'll ship somebody to your location for a couple of weeks. They'll do a bunch of Kubernetes training and analysis. And then we'll say, good luck. Those tend to be bigger companies. Those tend to be the, the enterprise folk who say, we've got a hundred DevOps engineers you, your team of 25 people, although impressive, could not operate our DevOps, nor would we want you to, so could you come in and help us out? And generally, the folks on the do-it-for-me scale tend to be the startups. Um, given that our costs are primarily labor costs, as you might imagine, we're not cheap. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a two-person startup uh, doesn't have the budget, nor do they really have the need to get a six-person DevOps team <laughs> And so we tend to target the small and mid-sized web and SaaS companies, the folks who are doing well, they're profitable, they're growing, they have a lot of existing infrastructure and existing applications and are saying, you know, we've, we've got you know, maybe a DevOps team and we want you to work alongside them, you know, run some of this Kubernetes stuff too. We are all on Heroku, but we're still 100 people. And the the prospect of migrating to AWS or Google Cloud is is uh, daunting. Mm-hmm. So, could you help take care of all that for us? Great. So, I want to roll the clock back and figure out how this all started. How far back do we have to go to to get to the beginning? Sure. So, um, probably uh, five to to six years ago is okay. when. I had identified the market need. I didn't found the reactive ops until 2015, March of of 15. But uh, before then I had been doing essentially CTO as a service consulting in New York city. Mm -hmm. I would come in to startups that had lost their CTO or their technical co-founder or whomever. And I would help, write the ship and I would generally do three month engagements and uh, I would come in with specific goals that we would identify, achieve them uh, and then, you know, help them find a replacement. Now I was not a recruiter, but mm-hmm. you know, certainly I could help interview them, but the, right. the founders really had to be the pipeline. But if you're a non-technical founder being faced with hiring a, any technical person, there's just no way that you're not going to get taken for a ride because you just have no idea what to look for. So I said, all right, you know, I'll help you. I'll stabilize the ship. I'll plug the holes as best I can. And, you know, you, you send me a bunch of folks and we'll hopefully find you a CTO by the end of the engagement. Uh, I don't want to be CTO of your company, Mm -hmm. although many tried to hire me. Um, I said, you know, I've done that. I've done that a lot and I'm not sure I want to do that anymore. 
Um, how, how did you find those kinds of opportunities, you know, from a, a either a marketing or a lead generation perspective, those CTO for higher ops opportunities? Yeah, it was all, uh, as, as myself, as the solopreneur, it was all my network. Mm-hmm. Um, I would reach out to folks that I knew uh, in the city and I would say, hey, uh, you know, my, since I had these three month engagements, it was nice that I knew when they were going to end. Right. And I was doing two part-time engagements at a time okay. in order to try to stagger them. So right. instead of the, the traditional, uh Oh, <laughs> you know, it's my, my engagements up tomorrow and I don't have anything. You go from a full pipeline to an empty pipeline. I said, well, I will, you know, work somewhere in the morning and I'll have lunch. And then in the afternoon I'll go work for another entity. And, and then that way I was able to offset them so that at, at any one moment I was at least doing something and uh, I tried to engage to bring them on at four day a week engagements so that I had at least one day a week to do networking and outreach and cold emailing and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. I don't think the cold emailing worked. Uh, well, it didn't. I okay. would say that the you know, emailing my friends or my network and saying, this is what I do. Here's the kinds of clients I work with. Do you happen to know somebody? New York City has a great entrepreneurial scene and it is very small. It's grown larger since I was doing this, but mm-hmm. but certainly is. Uh, it, everybody knows everybody. And so there was never a dearth of, the pipeline was never empty. If anything, it was always overflowing. And uh, it, was, it was hard sometimes to figure out, you know, well, there are these three companies that, are on fire and I can only help one of them, <laughs> you know, which one should I do? Right. Uh, and, and it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. Um, yeah. I'm curious before we move on, there's one specific question I have, which is, did you come from a CTO role and then start doing that as a self-employed person? Or did you sort of work your way up to that level? Now that's the pre question. Yeah. So I have been CTO or director of technology or technical co-founder for probably four or five startups in, in uh, the East Coast or New York City. Right. And uh, I had a startup that blew up and uh, basically ran out of money. Okay. And I wanted to still be employed there, but they couldn't afford to pay me anymore. So I said, all right, I'm going to go out there and do my own thing. And uh, so I had already been CTO of that company when I, when I went out and started doing this. Okay. So, well, here's, here's the actual, the question question is that transition from a developer, coder, you know, uh, technologist to management, what gave you the confidence to do that as you look back on it now with, you know, quite a bit of hindsight? Give me the confidence. Interesting. So I have a, a computer science degree, mm-hmm. and come from a programming background. Uh, I some friends of mine and I started a, a startup <laughs> from our dorm room. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, but I learned pretty quickly that, uh, as the Steve jobs quote goes is, you know, all, everything that you see around you is made by people no smarter than you. Right. And, and so I, I learned pretty quickly that, uh, you know, management is something that, can be challenging, mm-hmm. but it also it, having worked at a number of startups, you know, not in, in a managerial role and then transitioning over into management, it seemed like more often than not, the managers got in their own way more than the team, 
you know, sabotaging them, if that makes any sense. Like sure. it was almost always uh, lots of mismanagement and it was basically a, a really good education on what not to do. Okay. And so uh, in my sort of opinion or in my uh, belief, you know, management is, is really uh, not getting in people's way. If management is really giving them the tools and resources they need to succeed and then getting out of their way. And so actually it ends up being not a tremendously difficult mechanical challenge. It becomes a much harder personal to, you know, one-on-one challenge to get people, you know, sometimes uh, where they need to go. But um, I, I did go back to school and get my MBA, which I think was was useful in founding my company, Reactive Ops. But I don't think that from a one-on-one, you know, transitioning from technical to manager role, I don't think that played a, a big part in it because most of the curriculum was focused on, you know, here's how to create a balance sheet, right? And, and <laughs> right. Really, that really help you. Uh, it's certainly useful in operating a business or, or you know, running a P&L on, on some aspect of your, your, your company, but it didn't really help on the managerial side. Um, and uh, I just sort of fell into it because I was a student employee when I was getting my MBA. I was a, uh, a graduate assistant and they uh, said, oh, you've been in the industry for a while because I, I left. I did programming and then I came back. Mm-hmm. And the other graduate assistants that I was in in my program were all essentially, you know, getting your undergrad in computer science or whatnot and then coming back. And so they said, could you teach them stuff <laughs> and could you, uh, you know, could you manage them? And I said, sure. Uh, I had also taught as an adjunct, a number of classes uh, at, at my university because that was my first job out of undergrad was for the university. And a professor friend of mine said, Hey, you know, would you mind teaching these classes? So even before I managed people in a professional context, I had a lot of, I guess you could say managerial experience or leading or guiding or, or right. educating. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. So five years, you said five years ago, you identified a need in the market. What, what did that look like at that time? Yeah. So in doing this CTO for hire thing, mm-hmm. as well as being CTO or technical co-founder of a number of startups, I, always more often than not started or these companies would start off on Heroku. And if you're not familiar with Heroku, Heroku is a platform as a service company. I think it was founded hmm, maybe 10 years ago Mm -hmm. uh, as this, you know, point and click your way to an, a scalable uh, fault tolerant, really gorgeous developer user experience, uh, you know, platforms. So as a developer, you don't have to know anything about servers. We're seeing the resurgence of this in the serverless kind of stuff. But as a developer, my interface is I do Git push Heroku master, and that actually triggers a deployment of my code and then magic happens. Right. So, so everybody starts off on Heroku as you ought to, right? Like if you're a startup with three or four people mucking around with servers in AWS or Google cloud is just a waste of your time because getting to product market fit or getting your MVP out is the most important thing and messing around with which operating system ought we install on our servers is really just a, a totally, totally irrelevant question. And so everybody starts off on Heroku. And then as I like to say, everybody leaves Heroku eventually because (laughs) Heroku's pricing goes exponential. It's, it's, it follows a, you know, like an N squared, uh, sort of 
uh, pricing differential, or there is a feature that you need or some sort of a thing that is blocking you on Heroku in order to scale your business. And so you have to go. Right. And uh, that's the nature of a pass. There is no MVP for a platform as a service company, because if it doesn't have a piece of functionality that you need, there's basically no workaround. Right. So your, your company is forced to, if you want to be a customer of Heroku, you have to fit in their box. If you don't fit in their box, you can't use it at all. There's really no piece of it that you can use. So we would start off on Heroku, like all good startups, and then we would reach some tipping point, either uh, functionally or financially. And then we would migrate to AWS and it would be a complete disaster. <laughs> right, right. Um, and because as a CTO uh, myself or a director of technology or, or whatever, as a programmer, there's a lot I know about software development, if it be it Ruby on Rails or you know, Node or whatnot. But I don't really know anything about how to create scalable infrastructure I didn't at the time. And I said, there ought to be a way to give somebody Heroku on AWS and just charge them for Heroku, mm -hmm. let's just say. And so that was the genesis of the idea. And uh, I said, boy, because I'm doing this every single company and with varying degrees of success, but it's, we're building the same thing over and over. And so I joined a company called Rails Machine, mm -hmm. which is a Ruby on Rails hosting company, a CTO. And uh, I struck a deal with the founder. I said, look, I want to go build this thing. Uh, you need a CTO for you know some period of time. Let me do the things that I need to do, hit my particular business metrics that I need uh, so I can get a lot better at um, scaling React, uh, sorry, Rails machine mm -hmm. and learning more about how to manage uh, systems at scale because Rails machine is a Ruby on Rails full service hosting company with their own data center. Mm -hmm. And so I said, this is going to be a great education for me so that reactive ops will be much more successful, but that's ultimately what I want to do. And so we struck a deal where uh, when the time came, uh, Bradley Taylor, who's the founder of Rails Machine, mm -hmm. uh, you know, essentially um, is a uh, an owner of the business with me. Uh, didn't invest any any money necessarily, but but essentially said, "All right, you know, use the resources you have available to you at Rails Machine um, to you know figure out how to get Reactive Ops off the ground, and then when the time comes, you'll quit Rails Machine and mm -hmm. join Reactive Ops the next day." And that's what we did. Interesting. Okay. So kind of digging into, like, I, I'm so interested in how people identify opportunities. So you saw a pattern of this is pain. What, I mean, what did, what would, how, what words would you have used? This is painful every time someone needs to leave Heroku. What would you have said? Oh, back yes. Then? Uh, it, it was because nobody wants to leave Heroku. Uh -huh. What I mean by nobody is as a developer, it just works. You never have to worry about anything. Right. Um, you know, sometimes the business side says, well, we're spending, you know, $50,000 a month on Heroku and we know it might be 5,000 on AWS. Like let's find a way to make it happen. But as a developer, it, it's, it's a dream. Uh, it has great, what I kind of coined developer user experience. Uh, right. And, and so nobody ever wants to leave Heroku. Um, but okay, so, so it's like the Tom Waits song. I don't want to grow up. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, but you have to, and so sort of um, our positioning was, you know, we'll be the humans, we'll be your human Heroku as we're building um, this platform behind the scenes, 
And as we replace our human stuff with technology, you'll have access to that technology, but it doesn't really matter. You know, it's irrelevant for you if we're charging you X amount of dollars. Um, uh, you don't care how we've implemented that. We're giving you a result, not a block of time or hours or, or something of that nature. And so that gave us the ability to bootstrap our way into uh, a, a productization of what we were doing by saying, you know, for just making this up, you know, $10,000 a month, we will uh, restart your servers when they crash. It's, right. a, it's a silly example, but it's just one everybody will understand. Yeah. And all right, you know, you know who that was? That was me. <laughs> that was me getting a page at two in the morning. Right. And I would log in and I would restart your server and I'd go back to sleep. And then over time, as we figured out uh, what our clients looked like, what the common denominators were, you know, I or, or somebody else on the team wrote a piece of software that would restart the servers, but we were still charging you 10 grand a month for that. Right. Okay. So you, you, you got some efficiencies built up over time by automating what people were doing. I mean, was there, this is a little bit nosy, but were you like somehow managing to price match what Heroku was doing or was there a cost advantage or... I understand that at some point you gotta, you gotta grow up, you gotta leave Heroku, mm -hmm. but, um, what sort of, what part of that value proposition were your early clients responding to? Was it the, you'll lower the risk for us, even though it might be just as expensive or do you kind of see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. Yeah. So we initially priced it, um, at about what we thought, what I thought is it was me at the time. Yeah what I thought um, the price point was in which our customers would be leaving, you know, our clients would be leaving Heroku, right. which we sort of thought was around 10 grand a month okay. is when we started thinking about, of course, this was, you know, the three or four years ago, um, you know, salaries have grown quite a bit, but at the time that was, you know, maybe the cost of a fully loaded developer. Right. Uh, and uh, we said, you know, we'll come in at that cost and uh, you don't have to hire somebody. You pay your AWS bill, which will be cheaper, but you don't have to hire somebody to do this. You know, okay. We'll take care of it. And generally that, that resonates and makes sense with companies who are 15 or 25 or 35 engineers who are building a product on Heroku. They don't have any DevOps people. Right. And the skill set is, is distinct enough that their developers aren't mm -hmm. going to be the ones doing this. So they're saying, well, let's go hire a DevOps person at the time in you know, 120, 250 K a year was, was a pretty reasonably reasonable expectation for what to pay that person. Now it's probably closer to 200 and our prices have gone up too. Sure. But um, we came in and we said, don't hire somebody. You can get access to uh, our technology that always improves and our team of people. So it's not just one person because as a company, if you only have one person who owns all of your infrastructure, that's a huge risk, huge, huge risk. So you really are committing to hiring two or three people. You have to build a team. You can't go from zero DevOps people to, to one without following up quickly by two and three. So we are saving you a ton of money by not building a team, and we are giving you uh, technology that will always work, right? Mm -hmm. So the technology, if we disappear tomorrow... Everything that we've done at Reactive Ops is open source. Mm -hmm. uh, it is highly attuned to the way we work and our opinion on things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is, is it really 
you know, valuable on its own. We've had some people who've come to us and said, Hey, I set up your stack. And isn't that cool? Uh, we're like, Oh, interesting. Why are you using this? They're like, Oh, well, do you want to hire me? <laughs> so, <laughs> we've had people do that. Uh, I don't think we've heard anybody in the wild, uh, you know, using our stuff. Right. Uh, from scratch, but it does give some sense of, oh, a client can see that we know what we're talking about. They can see all of our commits, not on our, not only on our own stuff, but on Kubernetes or, or other pieces of technology that we work on, all open source. And or if we disappear tomorrow, nothing will change other than you'll need to hire some folks. But um, since everything's open source and using standard technologies and, and other open source components, the risk of, you know, I bought a black box from Reactive Ops. They've blown up. Of course, at 25 people, there's much less risk we're going to disappear. Right. But when we were three people or five people, we did have clients saying, you know, hey, we've been three people before, and there were times we almost didn't exist. Uh, and so being able to to mitigate some of that risk for them as well to say, well, if we do disappear, we're just doing things that your DevOps team would have created anyway. Uh, and it's all open source, so you get a copy of it, so don't worry about it. How important, what do you think that was to, do you see that as a marketing tool? It's clearly, it has a risk mitigation function as well for your clients, but is is there a marketing function as well? You know, the fact that you're showing up in Kubernetes commits and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's two things I think that are, that, are pretty valuable. Mm-hmm. One is it's a really good source of lead gen for mm-hmm. developer hires. Mm-hmm. So we're in the community. We're alongside them working on this stuff. They see us. They see how cool we are. They look back at, you know, if, if you're the only DevOps person on your team, you look back at the rest of your team and, and they're like, oh, we're super excited about Node or Go or whatever. Uh, and and you're saying, oh, why aren't they excited about Kubernetes? Let me go work somewhere where a bunch of people are really excited about, you know, building tools and helping uh, clients. So, so it's a really great source of lead gen for, for engineers. We don't, we don't pay, we've never paid a recruiting fee. Mm. Um, knock wood, you know, I'm knocking yeah. my head here. You can't hear it, but uh, <laughs> pay a recruiter's fee, uh, even though we've you know hired multiple people in a month before, which of course is not a tremendous challenge at, at 25 people. But uh, uh, you know, we've, we have a really great source of phenomenal, phenomenal people. And then on the other side, I think it helps with proving that we can walk the walk mm-hmm. as a uh, consulting company. Uh, you need to be the experts and mm-hmm. sure you can have case studies on your website where you're like, Oh, you know, food company said that we came in and fixed their servers. Right. You know, which we do, we have those like every right. But it, it, you know, how, how are those real? <laughs> they are in our case, but you know, you, you know, how, how relevant is a, you know, 200 word thing to somebody's buying decision? You know, certainly it helps. We have people talk to our reference customers, but being able to see the code and, and see that it's substantial, that it, it's done thoughtfully right. uh, and looks good, right? From a technological perspective, absolutely helps us close deals. Um, and you know, far more than, you know, having, keeping it proprietary, right. uh, you know, would there be some nebulous business value to that? I mean, I mean, sure. You know, it, 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 but we don't believe that the benefit to keeping it closed source outweighs the cost in terms of sales and, and risk mitigation and, and uh, hiring pipeline. Okay. 
Okay, so I'm going to guess that your initial early customers for reactive ops or clients were in-network clients. Absolutely. Okay. I, yeah, that was I, a pretty safe guess on my part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I I basically shook every tree, you know, hit everybody up on LinkedIn or or uh, you know, in meetups or other things where I knew people and I said I'm doing this thing. You know me, you trust me. We grew up, you know, together so to speak in the New York City tech community or yeah. or whatever as, you know, Rails developers and now you're CTO of some 250 person company. Is there some project we can do for you? And so uh, we would not have existed for sure if it weren't for our earliest customers who were personal network connections of mine. Um, you know, one of them, a big financial services company in New York, which you've heard of, uh, you know, I knew the, uh, I think at that point he was like the director of it or something Mm -hmm. like that from the community. And, uh, I said, this is what I'm doing. And he said, Oh, could you do this particular project for us? And I said, absolutely. And then we came in and we, it turned into a, uh, a year long project, but that revenue, uh, was able to to really grow the company and help solidify us. In addition to the case study of, of this named company that you've heard of, was very very helpful. And had I started this in my garage in Baltimore uh, when I lived there, so for folks listening, I've lived up and down the East Coast from DC to uh-huh. Baltimore to New York and now Philly. Um, I would not have been successful at all had I not built this network over the last you know ten years or so. So were you taking, was it specifically DevOps work at this time? Or was it like, we'll take anything we can to pour cash into this thing we're trying to build? It was all DevOps work, but it was any and all DevOps work under the sun. Right. You know, basically, sure. you, get a, you get a full-time developer to do whatever you want. If you want them to restart servers, they will restart your servers. If you want them to re-architect your AWS, they'll do that too. And uh, that was... A, a necessary evil, I guess you could say. Oh, evil's not the right word, but it was, it was a necessary part of our life cycle. We don't do anything like that now. It is much more focused. It is much more narrow. Yeah, for sure. So when did that additional focus on the platform of Kubernetes come into the picture? And and how, like, what, what did that look like from before that, before you made that decision, what were the early signs that, hey, maybe we could just focus there and, and that would work out well? Yeah. So from the very beginning, we knew that we were trying to build a platform. Um, right. So the engagements we took uh, were, were geared towards that. Now, obviously, at the very beginning, it was anything, but we were trying to slowly push our, our clients towards what we call DevOps as a service. You know, basically mm-hmm. we, we're going to create this Heroku-like platform. We're going to manage it, maintain it for you, and do this thing called DevOps. So from the very beginning, we, you know, the earliest genesis of the company said, this is what we're going to do. This is our unique value proposition. This is what we're going to provide. And then maybe a year into doing business, so early 2016, we had a very large, you know, Fortune 10 company come to us I don't know how we had dinner uh, with a person overlooking uh, Columbus Circle, New York, mm-hmm. at the VP of like, you know, a thousand person org. And right. they said, have you heard of this thing called Kubernetes? Because that's what we're interested in. Uh, 
Uh-huh. And you know, we had heard about it, um, uh, but didn't didn't really understand it. And they said, "Well, we're moving everything to it." And we said, "Oh, interesting. <laughs> there, <laughs> that there could be something interesting there if this company, which is on the bleeding edge uh, of of technology, and they're known for being on the bleeding edge, is moving all over to this. Maybe there's something there." Right. So we took a look at it, and our CTO said, holy cow, this is everything we could possibly build in our own little dinky platform times 10,000. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time, Kubernetes was about a million lines of code by almost 1,000 contributors. And now I think all those numbers have doubled. Yeah, And we said, "There's you can't beat them, so let's join them. And right. we saw that, that Kubernetes was still nascent. It was still very, very early uh, you know, two years ago, over you know two and a half years ago when we picked it up, early 2016. But we saw that uh, it just felt right from an operator's perspective in the way that, so I come from a Ruby on Rails background. I've been Mm -hmm. doing Ruby on Rails since 2006. Mm -hmm. When I first picked up Ruby on Rails from PHP, it felt right. And I said, this has something, you know, whatever Rails had at the time, maybe it was Ruby, maybe it was DHH and his magic. Right. just felt right. And I said, this is going to be the next big thing. And Kubernetes had that same kind of feel um, given, you know, we looked at stuff like OpenStack and all sorts of other kind of PASI sort of technologies. Mm-hmm. None of them felt right. Either it was the wrong abstraction layer, it was too big, too clunky, too enterprisey, whatever. Kubernetes felt like it was going to be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. And so we went all in on it and... Uh, you know, by the end of 16, we all, every single client that we worked on uh, from that point forward was all Kubernetes work. Uh, and so 17 uh, was, was all Kubernetes work. And then over time, we shifted all of our DevOps as a service clients from our own homegrown, you know, Frankenstein mm-hmm. to Kubernetes. So did that look like saying no to opportunities that weren't interested in Kubernetes expertise or how how did you make that transition happen? Were you proactively looking for a certain type of client? Yeah. So both. Okay. We would have people who would come to us through our funnel, through our sales funnel, uh, who would say, Hey, you know, we've got this great half million dollar project to do, I don't know, whatever, some particular piece of technology that was not Kubernetes. And we would say, could we convince you to use Kubernetes? Let us, you know, explain why we think that is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we would be successful and it would become a Kubernetes project. Sometimes we wouldn't and we would pass. Um, And that was when we were around 10 to 13 people, 10 to 15 people, somewhere around that time early last year. And we had reached the size and had the pipeline, you know, uh, of clients coming in that wanted Kubernetes that we were able to really credibly say, we're not going to take your money. Whereas, you know, in, in 2015, we took every dollar that came to us no matter what. Okay. And so we had to achieve a certain size and scale for us to be able to say, we're going to do Kubernetes or nothing. And we had built the marketing machine that was able to, reliably bring us Kubernetes leads. Okay. So those two things were in place for us to be able to say, okay, we're not going to do any more work now. Yeah. I've referred to that as like earning your way out of the old situation (laughs) and into the one that you want to be. And so it sounds like you did, you took that more prudent approach of 
I mean, I'm curious because I see people face this transition a lot. Was there a point when you were, you questioned the decision or you felt like, "Ah, I don't know, I'm not sure that this new thing can support us? Or was it maybe more of a right, right place, right time situation where that never came up? Well, certainly we didn't know. We knew that Kubernetes could do what we wanted it to do. Uh huh. What we were not sure about was that the market was going to be receptive to that. Okay. And so we're like, yes, Kubernetes can absolutely do the things that we want to do. But if people come to us saying we want OpenStack or nothing or uh, Mesos or one of these other sorts of technologies that was competing with Kubernetes at the time, Kubernetes is since one, but it wasn't clear that the market was going to reward our early adopter status of Kubernetes. And so there were a lot of sleepless nights while we were saying, this looks really great to let's go all in on it mm-hmm. of us, you know, in the executive team, so to speak, myself, the CTO and, and the head of sales uh, kind, of, kind of person. Right. And so it was not obvious that this was going to be a thing that was going to be successful. Um, it, it felt that way in the right. same way that Ruby on Rails felt like it was going to be the next big thing in 2005, 2006. But all we had was our, the strength of our convictions. Right. <laughs> and it's hard when, you know, we're, we were, you know, seven, eight, nine people at that time. And I was responsible for their, their pay and their, their livelihood and my livelihood on us being right on that. Um, and it wasn't really until, you know, maybe early 17, that it was uh, that it was clear, maybe mid seventeen, that it was clear that Kubernetes had switched from something we had to convince people that they wanted to people who were coming to us saying, "You're the best at this. Shut up and take my money." Right. And so once that flipped over, you know, then it was clear that we had made the right decision. But up until then, you know, it, it was not obvious because we were losing deals to other technologies. We were losing deals to not Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we were winning more than we were losing, but still there was a lot of uncertainty that this was going to be the next best thing. And then I, I can't point to a specific thing that happened in the industry or the market, but I think we were at the first Kubernetes convention, KubeCon in Seattle and it was, you know, hundred people or something. <laughs> and then the next year it was 500 people. And then the year after that, it was like 5,000 people. And we were like, okay, clearly this is something's going on here. And, and we saw that in the marketplace as well. Right. That it took hold super quickly, you know, the matter of a year or two, and then it was, everybody wants it. Yeah. I think of, well, I think, I think of iOS, um, development as following a similar trajectory of being it wasn't obvious right away that this was going to be a huge source of value and work for you know developers who had those skills and then it just was almost overnight everybody wanted an iOS app and then there's that tail end of that transition where it starts to you know the talent side of the market starts to look kind of commoditized. What do you think about that with respect to a a platform like Kubernetes? Do you see that happening? Is that something that you plan for, worry about, don't worry about? I mean, Kubernetes will blend into the background radiation of the internet just like 
you know, MySQL did. Right. And so, or Rails, you know, for that matter, or, or any other kind of piece of technology. Right. So that does concern me uh, in terms of just sort of a existential sort of thing to say, like, at some point, Kubernetes will not be the next biggest thing. Right. And so as a, as a company, as a culture, we have built into what we do, the expectation that we're always looking at new things. We have our equivalent of Google's 20% time, which is Uh what is the thing out there that's going to kill Kubernetes? It doesn't exist yet. I'm pretty sure of that. Right. It may be worked on right now by somebody. Um, It may, you know, blend into AWS and Google cloud in such a way that, that we'll have to, you know, build something on top of that. We've, we've already done that once or twice in our company's lifetime. And so, We've built into it that, yes, whatever the next thing is coming, hopefully we'll see it. We'll not fall into maybe an innovator's dilemma sort of trap and right. say, you know, oh, you know, maybe we're not going to be disrupted by that. So we think that we built change and the fact that we will be disrupted at some point into our model, into our company, so that whenever that happens, uh, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully see it coming and adopt it and, and move on to the next thing. The other thing, too, is... AWS and Google Cloud are fractally complex, mm-hmm. fractally complex. And, you know, every year AWS at, at AWS uh, reInvent has like a slide where they're like the number of services that we, you know, yeah. updated or released. Yeah. And it is going exponential. Right, right. <laughs> and there, nobody could, no one person or small team of two or three people could possibly understand all that AWS has to offer in your company while also trying to keep the lights on and the servers deployed and patched and all this other stuff. And so even if Kubernetes becomes another service uh, in a cloud environment that we support, uh, there will still be a need for a thoughtful arrangement of all of these different services. And somebody who is the expert at understanding AWS and Google Cloud who can say, oh, you know, here's here's where you use Kubernetes, here's where you use, let's just say, EC2, here's where you use RDS, here's where you use Aurora, and, and here's how to make all of that stuff work together in a secure, scalable, thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. That's always going to be somebody, no matter how advanced AW, and by always, I mean, you know, in my lifetime, right? Like, right. sure, fine, yeah. you know, 100 years from now, who knows? It probably yeah. won't be Kubernetes, yeah. but I will not, that won't bother me too much. So, you know, I think for the, the relevant lifetime of, of reactive ops and me, I, I don't foresee something, you know, any one piece of technology or any other thing you know, essentially rendering our competitive advantage moot. Right. We may swap out Kubernetes for something else. And we, we're excited for that day because whatever that is, is going to be something so much better. And, and so all the software that we write all the things that we do, we're, we're sort of expecting at some point it won't be Kubernetes behind the scenes or it will become a, an API call that we call, but that's just a, one small piece of the overall puzzle that we put in there. We just use Kubernetes as the delivery mechanism for our services, if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense to me, and that's a great perspective. So let's talk about, and I want to keep to our agreed-on time uh, slot here, so right. spend a few few minutes talking about that point when you started, you, you you mentioned it, you described it as building the marketing machine. And that's what mm-hmm. I'd love to dig into a little bit as we wrap up here is 
what did that look like? Um, you know, when, when did that start tipping the scales towards you being in control of your lead flow rather than just, um, siphoning is the wrong word, but, you know, mm-hmm. tapping into your network. Cause that has a pretty uh, finite shelf life for most people. So t- talk a little bit about that if you would, Matt. For sure. We didn't have a website <laughs> for probably the first three or four months of our company. I think that's awesome. Yeah. To me, that's the right, sorry to inter- interrupt, but to me, that's the right prioritization because you were getting your, your business for not from, you didn't need a website to get your business right. most likely. Yeah. And uh, I'm a big proponent of, you know, lead startup and MVP. And so I said, you know, I'm not going to sink $30,000 of no, I didn't have any money at that point. So I said, I, I can't afford a website. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how things go. So I remember, distinctly remember, uh, you know, being on a sales call and having somebody say to me, you don't even have a website. And I said, <laughs> well, you know, and I name dropped some of these other places. We didn't have a website when we hired, when they hired us either. And yeah. that, that place eventually went on to hire us anyway, because, uh, you know, the strength of what we were doing. Yeah. And so, you know, if I think back on, on what made us, you know, build that machine, it was, we tried a bunch of stuff. Um, we tried like everybody does, you know, paid cold calling, cold emailing. Mm-hmm. We, we reached out and we bought lists and we paid, you know, some Silicon Valley company, you know, $5,000 a month. They give us, you know, here's a million leads. And mm-hmm. we emailed them and our response rate was 0. 0.00001, right? Ugh, yeah. it, was, it was some ludicrously low amount of money or sorry, ludicrously low conversion rate. And I remember getting on a call with them saying, this sucks. Uh, yeah. And I said, we tried so many different things. And I'm like, well, it must be on your end. Like, we were not going to like terminate your contract early because we were trying to get out of the rest of our contract. Really uh-huh. Zero from this. And they're like, well, no, you can, you can, you know, like we know this works. And I was like, okay, well, it's not working for us. And, you know, from talking with other entrepreneurs, like it just, it never works. Like spamming people just, uh, spam yeah. is a word, but, you know, cold emailing people just does not work. So um, we tried that. Uh, and then we hired our, you know, head of marketing, uh, which, in retrospect, should have been maybe one of the first non-technical people I hired mm. uh, instead of coming, you know, probably a year later. Um, and, you know, he helped set us up. Um, we first hired a marketing consultant. Okay. So one of those people out there that's like, you know, I will 10x your freelancing rate or whatever it is. Sure, sure. And um, pay that person a whole bunch of money and, and didn't really get anything out of it. So okay. we were really disappointed. And then um, we, we found this head of marketing and he had been doing marketing some, some, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I knew we needed to be doing content marketing. I didn't really know what that meant. Okay. Um, I, I said, you know, we, we have to be able to have a scalable, repeatable model in which we can put a dollar into this machine. And we know that $10 or some amount, you know, more than a dollar will come out the other end. Right. And so, you know, we started uh, learning about keyword analysis and using Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Google uh, paid search, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, paid advertising that does very well for us. It, you know, we have to create the content that is really good and structure the content well and have, you know, email sequences that people go through when they sign up and they're like, Mm -hmm. you know, I do want to get this, you know, uh, how to migrate off a Roku guide and they get put on a drip campaign. Right. 
And that has, that has done phenomenally well. We do use paid outreach, but for um, in-person events that we do. Basically, we're going to be in New York. We, it's a free one-day class. We want to teach you Kubernetes. Mm. We will use lists for that. Mm. Um, and that works really well because uh, of each event, you know, we may get one or two paid clients out of that. Right. Um, and so, you know, we'll send the engineer. We'll pay to get the engineer there. And then the engineer will go back and say, this is great, but it's super complicated. We should hire them. Right. And uh, it, that, that just doesn't work in terms of an email context, but it works really well in the uh, in-person event context. And uh, so out of our, um, you know, if we had 100% funnel, probably 50% is paid search or paid, you know, lead gen um, of some form or another, you know, whether it's the uh, in-person events or it's putting blog posts in front of people, you know, on Facebook or, or whatnot. And then the other 50% is, uh, you know, organic inbound uh, from, uh, the events that we do uh, that are that don't be paid for, so we'll we'll occasionally do happy hours and make conferences and things, and then just normal kind of organic search or word of mouth. You know, right. a former client goes somewhere else and rehires us. Very rarely do we get actually any referrals from current and former customers for uh-huh. other customers. It's just the nature of what we do is so. Uh, it's not top of mind. If you're the CTO of a company, you're generally not talking with other people about DevOps uh, or Kubernetes. You might be now, but mm-hmm. but certainly at the very beginning, it was just something that never really came up. Um, you might talk a lot about, oh, you know, Ruby and Rails or Node or whatever, but for some reason, Kube never really came up. And because we are so narrowly focused on what we do, the referrals we would get would not be technical fits. You know, they're on some cloud we don't support. Right. Or okay. they're, you know, they can't use Kubernetes for some reason. And so the referrals, although we receive them, often don't go anywhere because it's just not, you know, the referral source is not a salesperson and they're not going to try to qualify the person. They can say, oh, yeah, we use Reactive Ops for that. And, and we love them. We love those referrals, but uh, they tend to not work out. Got it. Okay, so to kind of summarize maybe half of the lead generation that you see being effective is some sort of educational thing, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Educational content on your site, your blog, educational events, and then some paid search advertising, which, why do you think that works so well? I have my own ideas, but I'm curious, why do you think the paid search advertising is effective? I, I don't have, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, there's no way to know exactly why sure. it is. Yeah, that old um, thing about half my marketing spend. It's worth right. I just don't know which half. Yeah. Which half, right. And and so some of it is, um, you know, Google is really good at people searching for, like, how do I install Kubernetes? And putting our install guide there is really useful. Right. Um, and uh, so it captures that intent. Yeah. Uh, we can kind of target, oh, you know, we want a VP of engineering of a 50 to 100 person company so we can get a good ROI on these dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some part of it at the very beginning was an educational process where we would have to guide somebody down the path of, you know, my uh, my concern as a CTO might be, well, this is too important to outsource so to speak. We, we would get that before. Yeah. And so we would have to guide them down the path of why we think it's actually, 
you know, harder to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And so by being able to get them in a funnel and, uh, you know, through a side door, basically of saying why we think, you know, DevOps as a service is, is good or, or why um, actually outsourcing your DevOps is a good idea. You know, they may see that, click it, go, huh, that's interesting. They'll put their email address in. And then six months later, they'll come back and they'll say, we tried it. It didn't work. Like you said, it wasn't going to work. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and now we want to buy. Um, okay. So, so some of it was just a, a long sales cycle, so to speak. Uh, we weren't, they didn't even know they were in a sales cycle until they tried it. And they came back and they said, you know what? You've, you've convinced. Right. I don't, why do you think it works? Um, the intent mm-hmm. is what I was going to guess um, that it's, you know, like it's one of the, not just the intent, but the, the intent combined with where you are in the life cycle of this technology, still, mm-hmm. still somewhat early days, still not total mainstream adoption yet. So there's that combination of a feeling of being left behind or, you know, the, the awareness is, I love how you called it the background radiation of the internet. I'm going to have <laughs> to steal that term from you. That's yeah. so great. So, you know, the awareness is there. Oh, you know, this is a this is an, a, a solution that is moving towards mainstream adoption. We're going to be left behind. So that creates this fear and this urgency of we got to do something that gets people trying it, uh, you know, unsupervised and leads to their failure. So I, I think that combined mm-hmm. with the intent of a search that's like, how do I configure this aspect of Kubernetes or how do I install it or, you know, how do I decide on a, an appropriate architecture. Those are probably the kinds of search phrases that end up, you know, uh, calling up your paid ads. Absolutely. And you combine all those ingredients and it's, it's, um, it's a good combination, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what would be Matt on your list of, uh, let's say you were advising a friend who wanted to become your competition and you're, you're going to retire in a couple months anyway. So you're mm-hmm. like, I don't care. <laughs> what would you tell them just to never try? You've got cold email on that list. What else? Cold email. Um, never. So we're a, we're a completely distributed company. Right. And that means everybody works from not an office. Right. Uh, you know, maybe they have personal office and a couch. We've had some people who have not worked out on the employee side because we were their first distributed environment and they just ah, didn't like it. Right. Right. And so, uh, I might, I might say maybe not never, but I would strongly prefer somebody who has worked in a remote distributed manner in the past and excelled mm-hmm. because it is not for everyone. And if they're sitting on their couch, uh, and their kids are, you know, throwing balls in, in their face or whatever it is, which we had one person try to do that. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to be, you're not going to be successful. You're not going to be yeah. able to actually do the kind of heads down focused work that, you know, software development or, or DevOps or whatever requires. So I would say you know, it's very risky to take somebody who has been in an office their whole life and, and put them at home. Now, a lot of people would be say, yeah, like it's something I really want to do. But, you know, we, we tend to, to try to say, all right, well, let's give it a try. You know, let, let's, let's try for three months. And if it's not working for you, you know, harm, no foul. And mm-hmm. so we try to set up more of a, you know, if you've never done this before, let's just keep your eyes open. Let's keep open communication and understand if this is going to be a thing that you're going to thrive in. Cause it's not forever. 
So I, I would say, you know, don't hire somebody remotely who's never done it before unless you have a support system in place to be able to evaluate them, make sure that they're getting all the tools that they need because it, it might not work out. They might be a phenomenal person, a great engineer, but uh, have to be around people, uh, which is fine. Right? Nothing wrong. So I would, uh, I would do that. Don't call, don't call the email. Uh, don't do that. Um, and uh, don't be afraid to reach out to big companies uh, or, or companies that might need that, that need your help, especially if it's around newer technology like Kubernetes or whatever will replace Kubernetes. Because if they don't have the expertise, doesn't matter if they're a fortune five or five people down the street, they need that kind of support and expertise that only you can provide, provided you've got it. Now, obviously there are challenges if you're going to roll it out across, you know, tens of thousands of engineers, but you could do a pilot. There's all sorts of things. We've gotten meetings with companies that I thought we would never get meetings to because they were too big and because they needed what we are doing and we were able to find something that fit them. And I think if you had told me, you know, three years ago that we would have been working with the kinds of companies that we're working with now, I would have said, Haha, you know, <laughs> sure, one day, right? And that day came sooner because we just tried it. And so I would say, don't feel... You know, oh, I shouldn't email this company here in town because they're they're too big. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, maybe. But if you are creative and if you really have the expertise and they have the pain and the need, you can find a way to make it work. Sure. You're not going to replace or migrate 100 applications to the cloud with just you. That's not going to happen. Right. Because you'll take seven years to do it. <laughs> but maybe you can find a way to do one and then train them on how to do the rest. And right. so it's still a great client. It's still a great reference. And then at some point in the future, if you've staffed up, they will come back to you and they'll say, hey, you know, we, this worked with this one. It's taken us a year to get through 10 of these apps. <laughs> you know, how are we going to get through the other, you know, uh, 89 or 90 of them? Yeah. And maybe by that time, you're in a position to better take the rest of that business. So I would say as well, if you know you're going to be able to solve their problem, don't hesitate to reach out to them. Don't hesitate to get in front of them if you are going to be the best option. That's a fantastic place, I think, to leave things. Um, Matt, thank you for sharing so generously of what you've learned. I I'm just appreciate it so much, and I know the audience at home does too. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Philip. This has been wonderful. I would like you to say where folks could reach out or learn more or just anything you'd like to highlight as a sort of parting gift for our listeners. Sure. So I try to blog about the business side of things of running a company, growing it from zero, well, zero one, you know, point one to 25 people on my website, just mattrogish.com, M-A-T-T-R-O-G-I-S-H.com. Uh, obviously, reactiveops.com has a blog, but I, I, I keep the, the entrepreneurial and business topics on my personal blog. And then I'm also available on Twitter at uh, just Matt Rogish, M-A-T-T-R-O-G-I-S-H. And all the other places are generally just Matt Rogish. I'm pretty boring in that way. That's my conversation with Matt Rogish of Reactive Ops. What do you think? I'd love to hear from you. Philip at philipmorganconsulting.com. <laughs> 